Now, as we approach the final countdown to Christmas, it's worth acknowledging that Christmas can be quite divisive, can't it? Many of us here have deeply held convictions about the correct way that Christmas should be done. We've got uh, Team Turkey versus Team Ham, or for the veggies in the house, Team Nut Roast. We've got Team Fake Tree versus Team Spend All of January Picking Up Pine Needles. Not that I'm showing my bias there at all. Uh, we've got gifts pre-lunch versus post-lunch, tinsel versus non-tinsel, Mariah versus Buble. I've seen these debates separate entire families. <laughs> and then, of course, there's the debate about Christmas films. For me, my favourite Christmas film is The Grinch, the Dr. Zeus story of a big hairy grump who, though adept at rhyming nonsense words, struggles to quite embrace the spirit of Christmas. However, through a friendship with Cindy Lou the Who, his eyes begin to open and we read this strangely moving passage. And the Grinch, with his Grinch feet ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons, it came without tags, it came without packages, boxes or bags. And he puzzled and puzzled till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. What if Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. What if Christmas perhaps means a little bit more? Well, this Christmas season, we've been seeking to indirectly answer the Grinch's question and find out what this more of Christmas really is all about. We've been using this phrase, the wonders of his love, a line from the carol, Joy to the World. And a few weeks back, John Bodley encouraged us not to wander past the wonder of Christmas. And so today we turn our attention to consider exactly what the wondrous thing at the centre of Christmas really is. And here's where I show myself to be a kid's pastor, because in order to do this, we're going to play a bit of a collective game, imaginary game of pass the parcel, okay? We need to tear past the top few layers of Christmas, revealing and setting aside some of the great but not central parts of Christmas, such as gifts, rest, time with friends and family and traditions. And if we keep digging, even those of us who wouldn't describe ourselves as particularly religious eventually come across the story of a baby born 2,000 years ago called Jesus, filled with all the familiar characters we know and love, Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, the baby Jesus, and door holder number three, you know, the classics. But even that story in and of itself is not the final layer of this gift. There is one more layer beneath, which is where we find the real value and significance of Christmas. And so to see what that is today, we're going to turn to look at the book of John together. Unlike some of the other Gospels, John opens his account of Jesus' life with a simple poem that strips away the narrative elements of the Christmas story that we're so familiar with and allows us to focus on what John sees as the centre of the Christmas past the parcel. John writes, The Word, which is another name for Jesus, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's a famous passage that many of us will be familiar with that describes the coming to earth of Jesus at that first Christmas. And in the language of the NIV, which is what we just read from, it's translated as full of grace and truth. 
However, many Bible scholars suggest that John here is using language that is closer to the famous Old Testament line, love and faithfulness. The NLT puts it this way, the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. John repeats this idea later on in a letter that he writes where he says this, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. For John, his TLDR summary, the essential two parts of the Christmas story are one, that God sent Jesus to earth as a human, and two, he did so out of love. We see this again in what is arguably the most famous passage in the whole Bible. John writes, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. God sends and he loves. He sends and he loves. For John, it seems impossible to separate talking about Jesus' birth with talking about God's love. To talk about one is to talk about the other. They are two sides of the same coin. Returning to my imaginary past, the parcel for a moment. For John, if you wrap away all the layers of Christmas, the wondrous thing ultimately at the centre of it all is God's love. God's love for me and God's love for you. As the pastor and, uh, pastor and writer Rick Warren says, the entire reason for Christmas is the love of God. And so if we want to understand Christmas, it's important that we pause for a moment to try and understand a bit more about God's love. And as we do that, we're immediately confronted with a problem because the English language, I don't know whether you found this, can be pretty limited when talking about love. I can love my wife, but I can also love a seasonal hot chocolate. It's the same word, isn't it? And yet if we said that it meant the same thing, then my wonderful and beautiful wife, Eleanor, is probably going to throw said hot chocolate straight in my face. And rightfully so. What's more, a lot of our understanding of love is informed by the stuff that we watch or read, the songs we listen to, the emotions we feel, and the relationships, for better or worse, that we have. All of that can make it feel like we're super familiar with what love is, but often it's a skewed picture. And this is particularly true when thinking about God's love. What does it even mean? Does it mean that God has warm and fluffy feelings towards us? Does it mean that God is attracted to us so long as we remain attractive? Is God's love hot and cold? Where on the scale of hot chocolates to friends to spouses does God's love towards us sit? Well, the writers of the Bible, when writing about God's love, took a different approach. Ancient Hebrew, which the vast majority of the Old Testament is written in, developed nine different words to describe nine different categories of love. The New Testament was written in Greek, and they developed six. These range from describing hospitable types of love, to self-love, to the kind of love between friends or family, to romantic love. However, the word that the writers of the New Testament choose to use when talking about God's love is this word, agape. The word agape means sacrificial love. It's not a feelings-based love that fluctuates 
but it is a commitment to seek the best for another, no matter the cost or inconvenience. It's a wholly selfless, unconditional, sacrificial kind of love. In John 3.16, we read, for God so agapeoed the world. In 1 John 4, it says, in this has been revealed the agape of God that he gave his one and only son. God doesn't just love us, he has agape love for us, an other-centered, costly love. So let's just pause there for a second. For many of us, we will be familiar with a lot of this stuff, but as John said last time, let's not wander past the wonder here. The God who made the universe, who flung stars into space, that same God is not some disinterested force in the universe, but is a personal God who knows you and who desperately desires your good. God loves you. Let that just sink in for a moment. God loves you. It's wild, isn't it? Yet for all of us, there have probably been times where we, we don't feel this, especially in tough seasons where we might struggle to believe it's even true. You might be in one of those times right now. So especially in those moments, how can we be so sure that God loves us? Well, fortunately, God doesn't leave us with a dictionary definition of his love. He demonstrates what his agape love looks like in three different ways. Firstly, he gave up heaven. A recent survey in America asked people to describe the levels of sacrifice that they would be prepared to make for loved ones. Only a third of respondents said that they would consider moving countries for a loved one. Only a quarter said they would consider leaving a job. And shockingly, 25%, 25% of respondents said that they would be unwilling, unwilling to make any sacrifices for loved ones. Now, I imagine if we did that survey in this room, those numbers would be considerably higher, especially if we sat next to a loved one as we did it. <laughs> but nonetheless, I, can, I think that all of us can probably recognise that giving stuff up for those that we love isn't easy. I myself, every year, feel the costly pang as I load up my wife and I's shared advent calendar with chocolate that I know, in my heart of hearts, I will never get to eat. <laughs> Sacrificing is hard. And yet we see that this is the first way that God demonstrates his agape love for us. Philippians 2, in the message translation of the Bible, puts it this way. Jesus had equal status with God, but when the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave. He became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life. It's difficult for us to imagine a parallel for this, but a partial picture of this can be found in the lives of two German Christians called Johann Leonhard Dober and David Nitschmann. These young men came to faith in the Moravian church in the early 18th century, and they grew up in comfort, they had wealth, had families, and had promising careers ahead of them. However, they both felt a calling on their life to go share the good news of Jesus with those in the West Indies who had been enslaved as part of the barbaric transatlantic slave trade. 
When they were told that this would not be possible, both men offered to be sold into slavery. They were prepared to give up their own comfort, status and privilege and take their place in some of the cruelest conditions man has ever conceived. An unimaginable act of selfless love. And yet Jesus went even further. Jesus had absolute authority and glory and power and yet he gave that up. He crossed eternity, putting on our form, our struggles, our pain. There's a great line in a carol by Wren Collective that says, you left your throne to wear our scars. He left his throne to wear our scars. That is love. That is agape love. And so he gave up heaven. Secondly, he gave up his life. Continuing in 1 John 4 that we started reading earlier. This is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. God's love was demonstrated in the way that he gave his life at that first Easter as he died on the cross. It wasn't a good death either. Crucifixion is one of the most barbaric and humiliating means of death that's ever been devised. The nails in a person's hands and feet fix them in a position that would slowly and agonisingly suffocate them, all whilst crowds gathered to watch you struggle and suffer. It was a form of death designed to completely destroy a person inside and out. And yet we read that Jesus willingly came into this world to suffer that fate. It wasn't an accident. Even in the Christmas story, we find clues scattered without it foreshadowing this ultimate sacrifice. We see it in the gifts offered to Jesus by the wise men in Matthew 2. Amongst them, myrrh, a sap commonly used in the embalming of bodies, a gift prophetically pointing to the sacrifice that Jesus would one day make. We see it in the words of the angel to Joseph in Matthew 1, that he is to name the child Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. A name invoking Old Testament ideas of an atoning sacrifice. And we see it in Luke Luke 2 with two elderly prophets called Simeon and Anna, who prophesy over Mary that a sword will pierce your very soul. An allusion to the fact that 30 years later, Mary would have to stand and watch as they crucified her son in front of her. Jesus came into this world with his eyes wide open to what it would cost him, and yet he did it anyway. On the afternoon of Thursday the 30th of March, 1889, the ship, the Stella, collided with rocks whilst voyaging from Southampton to the Channel Islands. The ship began to sink immediately. On board was a stewardess named Mary Rogers, who, with the help of other crew members, were able to get the majority of passengers on board lifeboats. However, she soon spotted a woman on board who had failed to get onto a boat and who had no life vest. Mary took off her own life vest, handed it to this lady, before offering her the final seat on the lifeboat which Mary had been set to take. Eight minutes after striking the rocks, the Stella sunk and Mary, as well as 105 other crew members, drowned. Mary's act of self-sacrifice is commemorated on a plaque in Postman Park, London, alongside a verse from the book of John. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. In the same way, it was love that led Jesus to make the ultimate sacrifice. 
The Jesus Storybook Bible puts it simply and beautifully when it says it wasn't nails that held him there, it was love. In laying down his life, it's like he opened up a seat on the lifeboat for each of us, that we might be able to experience freedom and a second chance. This is love, agape love. In lay, if, you're, if you're here today, then Jesus did this for you. Whether you know this to be true right now or you feel a million miles away from God today, Jesus gave his life for you so that you could experience a fuller, forgiven life. You might be new here and never really considered this. And if that's you, then I'd encourage you to pick up one of the Why Christmas books that Ben mentioned earlier and spend this Christmas reading through it because I promise you this love can and will change your life forever. Those are available for free on the exits as you leave. So Jesus gave up heaven and he gave up his life to demonstrate God's love. But there's more too because he gave for his enemies. Paul in the book of Romans says this, but God showed his great agape for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. If God chose to give his position and his life for a bunch of wonderful people, then that would still be amazing. Movies are filled with your Iron Mans and Dobbies who do just that. And we love them, don't we? But that's not what he does. God gives up his position and his life for a bunch of people who are best case unworthy and in many cases his enemy. Jesus came into a world that ignored and rejected him. He was beaten, abused, spat upon, humiliated and nailed to a cross and yet even in that place he prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. I remember when I was bullied as a kid, I very earnestly praying that God would give them such a bad case of acne that they'd never be able to show their face again. My thoughts were far from forgiveness and even further from love. And yet this is not how Jesus responds. His agape love is there for everyone, friends and enemies. Some of you here today might feel like it's inconceivable that Jesus could love someone like you. Maybe you feel like your mistakes or choices have pushed you outside of his love. And if that's you, then I would say, If Jesus can love and forgive those who are actively driving nails into his hands and his feet, then the chances are he also has the ability to love you too. That is the extraordinary, selfless, agape love of God. He gave up heaven, he went to the cross, and he did it for his friends as well as his enemies. So in light of this, in light of all of this, what should our response be? I imagine there's a few of us here who have seen the film Saving Private Ryan before. Anyone seen that film? A few of us. It's an amazing film if you haven't seen it. And there's this scene at the end where James Francis Ryan, as an old man, is stood in front of the grave of Captain John Miller, a man who had led the team charged with rescuing him and who had ultimately given his life to do so. As he stands in front of this grave, he turns to his wife and asks, tell me, Tell me I've led a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. As he reflected on the enormous sacrifice given to buy his freedom, he needed a reassurance that he had not taken this for granted, that his life had in some way been lived in as, as a response to this sacrifice. 
This morning, as we've reflected on the costly, sacrificial love of God, if we believe that there's any truth to it at all, any truth, then we too cannot walk away unmoved, unchanged, just going through the motions of Christmas as if nothing happened. If we believe there's any truth to it, it has to mean something. And so just two really quick ways that we might like to respond to that love today. Firstly, with gratitude. This Christmas, I'm sure there'll be lots of us here who receive gifts from old Auntie Doris that we feel compelled to stick up on the wall or put on the mantelpiece out of a sense of guilt of how much they spent on it. It might be that as we've talked about the costly love of God today, that you're filled with a similar sense. But that is not the response God wants from us. He doesn't want us to respond out of a place of guilt, but out of a place of gratitude. In light of his freely given love, we want to approach this Christmas with a renewed sense of thankfulness to God for all that he's given us, all that he's done for us, and the love that he's shown us. Gratitude grows from seeing again and again, remembering again and again the kindness of God towards us, the value of his love. And so over the next few weeks, I'd encourage all of us to try and set some time aside, find a nice comfy chair or maybe a sofa with loved ones and begin to just read through the book of John. Or you might like to put on a worship playlist, but as you do that, begin to go through and list some of the things that you are thankful to God for at the moment. So gratitude is one of the responses. The second is with a life lived differently. Christine Kane, the Christian speaker and author, writes, God's love is too great to live ordinary. It is too great to live ordinary. The costliness of God's love, the magnitude of it, needs to affect the way that we live. In John 13, Jesus is speaking to some of his followers, and he says this, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Now, the commandment to love others is not a new commandment. It's littered throughout the Old Testament. The new commandment Jesus has given his followers here is this, to love each other just like he does. And how does he love? With an agape, selfless, self-giving kind of love, the kind we've been reflecting on today. As receivers of God's love, we need to be committed to the selfless kind of love that prefers others. This can mean over Christmas opening our doors to others when we would rather remain cosy and tucked up. Perhaps it means giving the gift of time, money or energy without counting or comparing the cost. It could mean demonstrating grace for that family member who insists on being team turkey even though you're team ham. It could also mean seeking to forgive or mend bridges with those who have particularly hurt us this year. Maybe that's what reflecting God's love looks like for you. Whatever it looks like, it has to look like something. Such love requires a life lived differently. It's my prayer that as we engage with the Christmas story this year, that amongst everything else, we would see, as our old friend the Grinch would put it, the little bit more of Christmas. That we would see past the seasonal celebration and familiar old story and see the treasure at the very heart of the Christmas past the parcel. The extraordinary, costly, selfless love of God 
for you and for me. That we would see, as that old carol puts it, the wonders of his love.